In the 90s, uh, SNL, Saturday Night Live, was pretty untouchable in its ratings, right? In the 90s, I, I would call that the heyday of Saturday Night Live. Some people want to go a little further back. But in the 90s, I mean, it, it just, it, it was killing it, right? I mean, they had comedians that were actually funny. They did skits that we're still talking about today, kind of like this morning. Uh, and my favorite of all the Saturday Night Live skits back in the 90s was uh, the skit called Celebrity Jeopardy. Maybe you guys remember this, right? Typically, Will Ferrell would play, uh, w- would play the role of uh, Alex Trebek, and, and other people, other comedians, or, or the stars that would be the host that week would play various other, other parts. And so um, the one I'm thinking about in particular has Daryl Hammond is playing the role of Sean Connery. And uh, Sean Connery. And, uh, and, and then Norm MacDonald is playing Burt Reynolds, right? And uh, Martin Short is playing Jerry Lewis, okay? And, and the way that Celebrity Jeopardy worked, what made it so funny, was that the celebrities were clueless, right? Alex Trebek would ask a question. Uh, there would be a category. He'd ask the question, and they would just have the most off-the-wall, ridiculous answers ever. And the whole skit was that Will Ferrell would just say, no, that's not it at all. And he would correct them, and they'd see how ridiculous they are. And so uh, my favorite Celebrity Jeopardy skits always included the Sean Connery character. And, and they always included the Sean Connery character because not only were his answers terrible, okay? Sean Connery was so bad at Celebrity Jeopardy that he didn't just get the answers wrong. He actually messed up the categories, okay? And so in the one I'm thinking about in particular, the last category, uh, Will Ferrell says, and the final category is S-words. Those are words beginning with the letter S. And so you, you may remember this. When it gets to uh, Daryl Hammond's, the Sean Connery character, he says, I'll take swords for 400, Alex. And he's like, there is no swords category. It's S words, words that begin with the letter S. Uh, this week in the story, we did have an encounter with a sword. But that's not what I want to talk about with you, okay? Uh, this week, we walked through a crazy amount of text. This week, we, we covered the Last Supper. This week in John chapter 14, uh, as we studied, Jesus promises that he's going to prepare a place for us. Then he is going to promise the coming of the Holy Spirit, that he's not going to leave uh, his disciples, his orphans, but he's going to send another one, a counselor and a guide. Then we have the entire uh, upper room, right, as Jesus serves his disciples. We, we have this moment where Jesus predicts that all of his disciples are going to flee and that even Peter is going to reject him three times. Uh, then Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and the weight of, of all of the world is upon his shoulders of all of the sin of all humanity upon his shoulders and, and, and there's the sweat like drops of blood and then there's the, the, the uh, betrayal by Judas the arrest of course in that transaction Peter draws a sword and cuts off a man's ear and then Jesus supernaturally super glues it back uh, somehow and, and the guy is healed right and, and, and then he's taken away and he, he stands before Caiaphas the high priest and Caiaphas uh, says you're a blasphemer and then he goes to Pilate and Pilate says listen uh, I want nothing to do with it, Jesus I can find no fault in him but the Jews shout out, no, he's guilty. Crucify him, crucify him. And then Jesus is, is, is beaten um, to a bloody pulp. And then he's forced to carry his cross. He can't do it. So Simon of Cyrene helps him carry it outside the city up to a place called the Skull. And there at nine in the morning, he is nailed to a cruel cross by his hands and his feet. He, he's, he's, he's risen up between two thieves there and, and excruciating pain. At noon, the 
entire sky turns black and the sun stops shining at 3 o'clock, right? At 3 o'clock, he's going he's gonna to cry for the last time for the cross. But between there, he has several cries. One of those is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, right? He even extends eternal life to a thief on the cross next to him. And then finally at 3, Jesus cries for the last time for the cross and he says, it is finished. And he lays his head and gives up his spirit. And at that moment, the earth shakes and the curtain in the temple is torn in two and the rocks are, are split in two. And dead bodies, it says, um, rise up from the graves and, and work their way out into the city. And this morning, I, I don't want to talk to you about swords, but I do want to talk to you about three S words that are crucial to us understanding what Christ has really done on the cross, okay? So that's what you're going to find in your sermon notes if you got them this morning, is we're going to talk about three S words that we desperately need to understand when it comes to the cross. Here's number one, ready? Sin. Sin. Jesus has come to seek and to find sinners. All right? We can't forget this. Hear me. Everything in the story to this point shows us the links to which God is willing to go to bring sinful people back to himself. This is why the cross is, is crucial. This is what Jesus means when he stands before Pilate and he says in John 18, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my ser- servants would, would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place, right? He hasn't come to, to play politics. He doesn't need any kind of earthly power bestowed upon him because he has all power and authority bestowed upon him by God. No, this is necessary. You see, the cross displays both the holiness, the perfection of God, and the severity of sin. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. And guys, we know this at this point. We're 26 weeks into the story. We, we, we've tracked this truth about sin since the beginning, right? With Adam and Eve, when sin first enters the world. Adam and Eve, the moment that sin entered the world, could no longer be in the presence of God. And the moment that they could no, be, no, no longer be in the presence of God, they no longer had access to the life of God. Because where God is, his life is, right? And so when they were cast out of the presence of God, not only did they lose a relationship with God, they lost life. They lost eternal life. Now death will enter the world. And it's at that moment that sin enters the world that death comes. And God has to kill an innocent victim. He kills an innocent animal. And he makes, he makes animal skins to cover their shame to cover their, their nakedness. The moment that sin enters the story, death is required to cover it. We saw the same thing in Exodus from Egypt, right? The 10th the plague is the death of the firstborn. What will it take to avoid death? It's going to take an innocent victim. It's going to take a covering for, for sin. And so there the Passover lamb is, is the innocent victim and is slain and the blood is put over the doorpost and, and on the sides and it's placed here and here and here. It's pointing to the cross. We see the same thing uh, in the wilderness, in the wilderness wanderings. Moses is up on the mountain with God and he's there for 40 days. We're going, what is taking so long? And, 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 and God is saying, listen, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. And I want to come down and I want to camp out at the very center of your lives. But for that to happen, we've got to do something about your sin. 
And so God institutes a sacrificial system to deal with sin. And he says, this is going to be a temporary way for me to cover your sins so that I can live in your midst. And so if we're going to study and understand the life, the work, and the death of Jesus, the one who has come to bring us back to God, we must start here. Talking about sin. You notice, I've said that word now several times, sin. You know the word I didn't use? Struggle. Dear Christian friends, you need to delete that stupid word from your vocabulary. I know that you see, the pastor just said stupid. I did. That's in the Bible, by the way. Proverbs, I wrote it down, 12.1. He who hates correction is stupid. We have substituted the word struggle for sin. And in it we have bought a lie, believing that somehow we can manage our sin problems. See, because if it's a struggle, it's not that bad. You know, I like to say things, well, well, I just struggle a little bit with self-control. Well, I just struggle a little bit with gossip. I just struggle a little bit with forgiving others. No, my friends, it's not that you struggle. It's that you are a sinner and that you have been since birth. You see, because if it's a struggle, I need a new management plan. But if it's sin, I need a savior. And when we change the vocabulary... We lose the significance of the sacrifice. Jesus didn't come to die on a cross. He didn't have to die so that you could have another sin management plan. He had to die so that you could put sin to death. That's that's the formula. Sin requires a sacrifice. And so Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that we could not. And he died the sinner's death that we deserved. And we've got to regain this necessary vocabulary. We have to talk about these important S words. The first of which is sin. Jesus had to die because of our sin, not because of our struggles. He had to die because we constantly do things that don't please God. He had to die because we constantly say things that don't please God. He had to die because we constantly think things that don't please God. He had to die because God, when he had told us the things that would please him, we reject those things. And we substitute our own desires. That is sin. And sin demands a savior. If you're going to understand the importance of Friday, you've got to understand the depravity of the human heart. We are sinners since birth. It's not just that we struggle. It's that we are sinners. And we are in great need of a savior. Second S word this morning. Serve. Serve. Jesus has come to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus has come to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It is impossible to make it through the text that we read this week and not pick up on what happens in the upper room. Right? The, the unthinkable happens in the upper room. The night of the Last Supper, Jesus is, is sharing with his disciples, uh, God in the flesh, that's Jesus, does the unthinkable. Right? He, he, he does the, the unthinkable. Um, he takes off his outer garment, he wraps it around his waist, and he takes the lowest position in the room. I want you to think about this with me. Now, traditionally, there would have been a servant here in this room, maybe even a slave. 
The person would have been the lowest thought of person in all of the room. And their job was to wash the feet of the people that were reclining for dinner, right? And you got to imagine, they they were reclining. They weren't sitting up at a nice dinner table where the feet had nothing to do with it. They're reclining at a very low table, and so the feet would be very close to the food and and contamination and issues. And so you you would want to clean the feet pretty well. And you're going to wash the feet before you just kind of sit down at at a low table with your feet very close to you. And I just said, yeah, some of you don't like feet to start with, right? So when you think about dirty feet, and so, so this was the job of the servant. But there is no servant in the room, and, and I actually think that, that on, on this occasion, it's intentional. Right? There's no servant in the upper room, and I, I think it's on purpose. I wonder if Jesus actually excused them from their duty. Or if he chose a room intentionally that didn't have a servant, because Jesus wanted to teach this lesson. Now, without a servant present, what should have happened? Without a servant present, one of the disciples should have stepped up and taken the position of the lowest person and washed the feet of the others. But as we know, the disciples were fighting over who was the greatest. Not a single one of them was going to (laughs) budge. They were so full of pride and so worried about position that there was no way that they would, would lower themselves. And so no one moves. And so Jesus, God in the flesh, does the unthinkable. He stands up. And he lowers himself, and he takes the lowest position. None of them are willing, and so Jesus does it. He becomes the lowest servant in the room. He washes the feet of men that are about to flee when he's arrested. He washes the feet of the one who is about to betray him, and and, and Judas. And, And even this, and in this, we see the heart of why he's come. And, and, and guys, by the way, this is exactly what's on display in the cross. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. God in the flesh serving us. God in the flesh serving us. People who run, people who deny him, people who will fail him. And, and, and Paul says it this way. I'm in Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. He, Paul's, Paul's explaining uh, what happened in the upper room is exactly what has happened on the cross. Okay, these two aren't separate incidents. Rather, the cross is the ultimate outcome of the servanthood that we see of Jesus in the upper room. And so Paul says it this way in Philippians 2, starting in verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, ready, by being like-minded by having the same love, by being one in spirit and in purpose. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or of vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Ready? Who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul says, your attitude should be the same as this. Why does Jesus do this? Why would Jesus come this way? Well, in part... I'll answer the, the, the big part of that and the third one. But in part, Jesus does this, according to the text, ready? To set an example for us. 
This is what it says in the book of John. John 13, 14 through 15. Jesus says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. Okay? Now remember what that entails. This is not about physical foot washing. This is about now that I, your Lord, have become nothing. Now that I, your Lord, have become the lowest of you. And have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Jesus says my followers are to do the same. That's what the cross is about. It's the culmination of this kind of service. It's at the very core of Christ's mission. And our job, no matter what age we are, whether we're in middle school or high school, whether we are married or single, whether we're, 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 we're in our 40s or we're senior adults, our job is to serve. So I'm going to say something to you this morning. I'm going to say it to you in love, but it's going to sting a little bit. It probably should. Most people I know say that they want to be in the very center of God's will. That's what they say. I just, I, just want, I just want God's will for my... I just want... That's what we say, because we talk a really good Christian game. Write this down. If we are not models of service, if we are not actively serving others, then we are outside of the will of God. Period. If we are not Models of service. If we are not looking like Jesus, seeking to serve like Jesus, if we're not taking the lower position like Jesus, then we are actually outside of the will of God because he said, I have come to set this example for you. You are supposed to do what I have been doing. And not only that, if we're not serving, and this, this is the, the scary part, if we're not serving, not, not only are we outside of the will of God, my friends, but we are in grave danger. See, the disciples at this moment were not just outside of the will of God, the fighting over who's going to be the, the greatest. They weren't just outside of the will of God. They were in grave danger of becoming something way worse. Because, listen, the greatest roadblock to service is pride. The greatest roadblock to service is pride. The greatest roadblock to, to, to taking the lowest position in any room is always pride. And hear me, pride is the greatest of sins. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, uh, talks about this great sin. just want to read to you for a second. He says, I now come to the part of Christian morals. This is... This specific book is talking about Christian morality. You would think it has to do with sexual immorality, those kind of things. But listen, he says, I now come to the part of, uh, that part of Christian morals where they differ most sharply from all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their hands uh, or their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it, Ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. 
The vice I'm talking about is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in the Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual immorality, I warned you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. You see, when we refuse to humble ourselves, to take the lower position, when we decide that we don't need to serve, that we're too good for that, we're on the course, we're on the path to grave sin and a great fall. That's the danger of it. Now some of you are thinking, now pastor, come on, come on. Aren't you pouring it on just a little thick this morning? Come on, Patrick. I mean, do you really mean to tell us that if we're not serving, we're outside of the will of God? Is that really what you meant to say? Yeah, that's really what I meant to say. So let me answer all the questions that come then after that. Because after you, you, you grapple with that, you, there are a ton of questions that pop up. Like, like the first one is, well, why? Why would you say such a thing? Why would you say such a thing? Well, well I'll tell you why. Because Jesus did. That's the first part, because Jesus did. Because Jesus said, like, this is, this is what you're, suppo- you're actually supposed to serve. Because it's, it's actually commanded. He actually, he actually told us to go out and to do this, to serve one another, to love one another. We do it because it's the example that he said, because it's what he has done for us. And somebody says, okay, fine, fine, fine. How? How then? How, how am I supposed to serve? And I would say in the same way that Christ did, you're to serve in humility, Right? Jesus made himself, it says in Philippians 2, that he made himself nothing. Some say, well, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to make myself nothing. I'll give you some suggestions. Ready? Go out and do whatever you consider beneath you. What's beneath you at this point in life? Is children's ministry beneath you? We always have a need there. Even help out in children's church. Maybe it's youth ministry. Man, I, I just, I'm done with the stinky teenage boy. Don't put on deodorant face. I'm done with that phase of life. Is that beneath you? What, what, what's lower than you? Because that, that's what we're talking about. When you say make yourself nothing, you've got to find something that you consider beneath you and you need to become that. You need to get down there and, and start doing that, right? Maybe somebody, somebody, Says that that's that's cooking, you know. Wednesday night, we we need we probably need two more teams of people to cook on Wednesday night. We need people to wash dishes. Well, that's just it just happens magically, doesn't? Nothing happens around here magically. Somebody does it. That's how it works, right? You're struggling with the idea, the concept. Well, what's beneath me? I counted. There's 18 toilets in the building. 18. It's a lot of toilets. Well, we pay somebody for that. Well, yeah, that's one guy who walks around all week doing his best. You see one out in disarray, just pick up the brush next to it and scrub it. You do it at your house. What's beneath you? Because when Jesus says, I, I, like I'm, Paul, Paul writes, he, he came and he made himself nothing. He became the lowest of servants. That's what we're talking about. Last question that comes out of that, somebody says, well, how, how far do I have to go? That's the Pharisee question, by the way. Where's the line? Who's my neighbor? How far do I have to go? Randy, here's the answer. You're going to love it. Till you die. 
to the point of death. That's, that, that's the biblical. How far do I have to serve in my marriage, right? How, how long do I have to stay here when, when, I, when I don't feel like being in this relationship? The answer is to the point of death. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your, Christ, love your wife. And Christ loved the church and gave up himself for Right? Ladies, it's not any better for you because you've got to submit to that dude till you die. Right? Children, you've got to obey your parents until you die. Not until they die. Like until you die. You still should do what's honorable under your parents. Right? I mean, this is, this is, this is the Bible. This is the Word of God. And, and it's not up for debate. We, we don't get to choose. We, like, this is the goal. We are, we are called to love and to serve, to become the lowest person in the room until we breathe our last breath. How many of you qualify as senior adults right now? Raise your hand. You qualify. Just say, I qualify. Okay, awesome. I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. I'm loving you. This is love. Why aren't you leading the senior adult club? Just planning it. Because Alan's had to take it over. And, I, and, and he'll do it because he gets paid. That, that's kind of our role around here. Yeah, we'll do it. But he's doing it, and that's something that you could do. It's not that hard to find people to come talk. It's not that hard to organize volunteers. It's just, it's, 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 not, it's not that difficult. But we kind of reach this point, man, I'm just done. I don't have anything left in the tank. Are you kidding me? If you have air in your lungs, you have something left in the tank. And so, so, so we do it. Now listen, I, we've got senior adults that are willing to serve. Hear me, they show up and they set the tables and, 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 and they bring the food. But, but, but to organize the event, it's just not as hard as it sounds. We just need somebody with a heart. It says, yeah, I, you know what, I'm, I'm willing to serve. We can't sit around the room looking at one another going, who's going to do it? Well, who's going to step up, I wonder. I wonder. Well, we know that it needs to be done. There are a lot of things in this church we know that needs to be done. But it's like we're just waiting. Well, I, ah, I don't want to get my hands dirty there. Maybe such and such would do it. When we do that, we act a whole lot like the disciples. Okay? And, and th- that's not our model, Jesus is. Okay? I say that to you in love. So, Jesus came to serve, give his life as a ransom for many. Last S word. Safe. Safe. Jesus has come to save us by becoming our perfect sacrifice. Jesus has come to save us by becoming our perfect sacrifice. Nothing is a coincidence with God. I say that again. Nothing is a coincidence with God. You guys remember Abraham and Isaac up on Mount Moriah? God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And, uh, and, and Abraham believed that God would provide. And he kept saying, God's going to provide, God's going to provide. He builds the altar, he binds his son. And it isn't until the moment that Abraham actually raises the knife that God steps in, right? Angel of the Lord shouts out, Abraham, hold up, hold up. And Abraham looks up, and when he looks up, he sees a ram caught by its horns in a bush. And he grabs that ram, and he makes that ram the sacrifice. And, and he names that whole region of Moriah, Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord provides. The Lord will provide. Or on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Same thing happens in, in the Exodus, right? Right? There's a substitute. There's a substitute on Moriah. There's a substitute at, at Passover. A perfect lamb, a sacrifice uh, is made. When Jesus shows up, John the Baptist sees him. He declares in John one twenty nine. Right? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and, and what, what John is declaring, like, there's, there's the substitute. He doesn't even know that's what it means at this point. He's going, like, that's the Lamb of God. That's the Passover Lamb. That, that's going to be the substitute, right? Well, this week in our text, the Jews are celebrating Passover. That's the meal that Jesus is eating. And during Passover at, at 9 and at 3, a sacrifice was made. 
a Passover lamb was sacrificed in the morning, at the morning offering at 9 o'clock, and at the evening offering at 3 o'clock. And during that time, a, 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 a priest would, would go up to, to the pinnacle corner of the temple, the highest point, and he would blow a shofar. That's a ram's horn, by the way, just in case you're wondering. So he goes up and he, he grabs the ram's horn and he will blow it as loud as he can. And everyone in the city at these times, when they hear the blowing of the shofar, stops and they realize at that moment a substitution has occurred. At that moment a substitution has occurred. Some, something, some lamb has died in their place. And it is a time that they're supposed to stop, confess sin to God, and be thankful for who he is and his provision. Okay, At 9 o'clock when the shofar blows the first time that day, Jesus is nailed to the cross. There on the cross, he suffers for six hours in agony. At 3 o'clock when the shofar is blown for the evening sacrifice, Jesus breathes his last breath, says it is finished, and he dies in our place. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No coincidences with God. Jesus came to save. He suffers on the cross in agony for six hours, and at the very moment for the Passover lamb to be sacrificed, he dies in our place. Our perfect Passover lamb. Not inside the temple, but outside the city, so that we can be brought into the family of God. Jesus came to save. Okay? How do we pack this up? Take it home. Give you some homework this week. Not fun homework, but, but necessary. Okay? First and foremost is, is uh, we need to confess and repent of our sin. We need to confess and repent of our sin. Uh, listen, change the vocabulary. It's not a struggle. Stop it. Well, I, our marriage is just struggling. No, it's not. No. Two sinners, that's what's going on. There's sin involved. It's not a struggle. I'm just struggling with judging people. No, you're not. You're sinning. You need to take every thought captive. Right? I'm struggling with my finances. Okay? Stop. It's not about struggling. Okay? I'm struggling with my, 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 my diet. No. Not. We, we're gluttons, right? I mean, we are. Can we just admit that in America? Go anywhere else in the world and, and watch them struggle for food and water, for crying out loud. Water that we just leave on running forever. We pour all our hot grease down into. I'm the worst about it. Gosh. Confess and repent of our sin. It's not a struggle. It's sin. And we have to call it sin so that we recognize our need for a Savior. <laughs> so we recognize our need for our Savior. And we turn to him. Say, Jesus, I am sorry. Forgive me. I need you to come into my life and to wreck me. To change me from the inside out. Okay? Number two, challenge this week. Don't take it the wrong way. <laughs> Get dirty and dead. Right? Not talking about physically, entirely. Although some, some of the getting dirty will be physical. When we talk about dying, we're talking about dying to our selfish ambition and pride. That's the call of Philippians 2. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, so he made himself nothing, Right? The call of the Christian is to die to self. But I want, I want. That is the most common phrase I hear when people come into my office. I 
I want, I don't like, I want out. I, I mean, everybody I counsel with, me, me, me. It's all about how I feel. So I, I don't feel like this is right. I want to do this. I want to do this. I'm sorry. I love you in Jesus. Repent. It's not about you. You've put yourself on the throne. You're not even at the table. You're up here. You need to be at the lowest seat possible. I long for the day when somebody comes into my office and says, Pastor, I am looking for a way to better serve my family. I'm looking for a way to become a lower servant in the church. I'm looking for a way to get dirty and and messy. I'm looking for a way to die to my own selfish ambitions and desires. Can you help me? Boy, that'll be the day. Last one. By the way, I tell you about the second one, the reason to get there. You say, I, I don't know how low I can get. I tell you, in, in Jesus' kingdom, remember, the lowest is the highest, and the least is the greatest. See, in our, in our kingdom, that's, that's just, that doesn't make any sense. In our kingdom, the greatest is the greatest. The wealthiest is the greatest. The, the, the one that gets the most attention is the greatest. That's, that's our kingdom. That's the kingdom we live. But in Jesus' kingdom, it's totally different. The lowest is actually the highest. The least is actually the greatest. So when I'm telling you to get low, like that's a good thing. It's a good thing to say, oh, I, I need to get lower on the totem pole. Last one, believe and receive, right? Good Friday. Why did Jesus come to die? He came to die because of your sin. He came to die because of my sin. To die. Not not, not just to show up. It's not just that God came to earth. God came to earth. He lived a perfect life. And if you you wonder what agony is like, go back and reread Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you wonder how, how, how bad sin really is, listen to Jesus cry out to his Father, If there is any way, Father, take this from me. But ultimately, God, I want to please you more than anything else. Your will be done. And he goes back again a second time. You've ever wondered, well, maybe I shouldn't pray about the same thing on multiple occasions. Jesus did. So he goes back a second time. He actually prays the same exact prayer. Father, please, if there is any way at all that you can remove this burden from me, then do it, God. But ultimately, again, not my will, but your will. And then still, a third time, in agony, he cries out, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Why is Jesus overwhelmed to the point of death? Why is is his body physically shutting down and he's sweating drops of blood? How did he get to this point? Because of the weight of sin. Not struggle. Sin. And that's why he dies. To save us from our sin. That is what Friday is about. That is the culmination of this story. This, this one who has come cannot bring us back to God without providing a way for us to be forgiven. We can't come back to God unless our sin, the wage of it, which is death, is paid for. And so Jesus has come to die. To save sinners like you and I. If you're here this morning and you have never believed in that. If you're here this morning and you've never truly received that on your own. 
maybe it's time to join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for loving us. This morning, we're going to simply ask in this moment that you would meet us here in a powerful way. Just right where we are. And that you would just change us from the inside out. Holy Spirit, work like only you can in your name. We pray, amen. Just keep your heads bowed for one second, your eyes closed, just for a second. I'm going to start with the Christians because uh, it's a good place to start. How many of you this morning would, would be willing to confess, I've got sin in my life, Pastor? Sin, it's not a struggle, it's sin. Uh, today, I'll call it sin, today. You don't have, we're, not, we're not saying what the sin is. Just between you and God, you know it's sin. Okay, put those hands down. Right now, where you are, just begin praying. Just begin confessing. Jesus, I know that you died for this. You didn't die so I could manage it. Just begin praying, just in your, in your heart. You didn't die so I could manage it. You didn't die so I could struggle with it. You died so I could put this thing to death. I am tired of this battle. Kill this sin. Help me mortify it, please. You just begin praying right where you are. Maybe there's somebody here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus yet. What that means is that if you were to die today, you would stand before a holy God and you would be held accountable for your sin, for the wages of sin, which is death. That is a, that's a terrible thought. But there is one who's come and died in your place so that you don't have to be. Jesus, when he dies on the cross, when we, that we celebrate that this Friday, when that happens on Good Friday... It's not good. It wasn't good for him. No, it's good news for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We get the life and the pure record of Jesus if we will believe in him. If you're here today and you would say, honestly, Pastor, I have never believed in Jesus. I've never given my heart to him. Would you just raise your hand just where you are? Nobody's looking. Just say, I've I've never asked Jesus to come into my life and to forgive me. Anybody? Okay. Lord, I pray that the truth and the weight of this week would sit on our chest like an elephant this week. That we would understand that we need a Savior. And that when we look and we celebrate Good Friday together as a church at the Carters, we see all the kids running around, we would understand the glory of the cross. That this is what you have done for us because we are are sinners. In Jesus' name we pray.